Thank you, Nick. I'll, uh, I'll leave my sports allegiances to the side until afterwards so that you don't judge me before I start. When my family arrived here in Edmonds, we didn't know anyone except my brother and his family. And since that time, uh, the family here at CCF has welcomed us uh, week after week with conversations, meals, and uh, opportunities for ministry. And, and so I'm really grateful uh, to have this opportunity to serve um, here this morning. So if we could, let's start our time with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning and we pray that in these moments that we have, you would uh, take your word and you would use it to pierce our hearts and uh, to help us to see um, the truth of your word uh, and how it intervenes and intersects with our lives and leads us to more Christ-likeness and leads us to shine uh, like the lights that you have made us to be in this world uh, that is uh, so dark. And uh, we pray that your spirit would be with us and uh, speak to our hearts this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been here with us uh, for the past few weeks, you'll know that we are going through the life of David in First and Second Samuel. And this morning, our glimpse into David's life is all about the idea of justice. All about justice. Now, the word justice is a word that has become quite nuanced, and so I need to clarify what we mean by justice before we really get going. What I do not mean by justice is like institutional justice or social justice. Rather, what we're going to talk about this morning and what we're going to see from David's life is the issue of personal justice. Personal justice. Our story this morning, it asks and it answers the question, what does David do when injustice is done to him? And by extension, what do I do when injustice is done to me? And here's the foundation of our story. This is what drives our story, and this is our point of connection with David in the story. We all have a really strong sense of personal justice. All of us. Let me show you what I mean. On the slide behind me, there's, a, there's uh, some streets from the city of Torrance where we used to live. And you'll see on the west side, there's a major boulevard, Hawthorne Boulevard, and on the east side, Crenshaw Boulevard. These are the two major north-south boulevards that exist in Torrance. One of the streets that connects them is Lomita. And on the day in question, my wife, Abby, was heading eastbound on Lomita from Hawthorne to Crenshaw. And her intent was to go to Crenshaw and turn left at the left turn light, right? So there's going to be an arrow at Crenshaw that, so she can go north. But as often happens in LA and in Torrance, there's a lot of traffic. So the traffic backed up from Crenshaw all the way almost to Hawthorne, bumper to bumper, right? Like a freeway gridlock. This uh, Lomita is a a four-lane road, so two lanes each direction, and she's just inching along, trying to get to Crenshaw to turn left. While she's doing that, she's approaching an intersection at Madison, and the person in front of her decides that since there are some other cars that are headed westbound toward Hawthorne that want to turn south onto Madison, unprotected left, he's going to stop and let them go through. Very nice guy. So... He pauses just before Madison, and he lets a car go through. And then he lets a second car go through. And then he lets a third car go through. And all the while, the traffic in front of them is continuing on, and there's now a gap between them and the traffic headed toward Crenshaw. The person behind Abby gets impatient. 
So what does he do? He honks, honks, honks loud. And the person in front of Abby hears the honk, turns around, looks at Abby, and yes, he flips her off. And then he continues on. Abby's surprised, but you know, we have more important things to do, we're going home. So they continue on toward Crenshaw, and they get to the light at Crenshaw. The light at Crenshaw, as I said, it's an arrow. And so the arrow at Crenshaw turns green, and the cars begin to go through, and the car in front of Abby, he hasn't forgotten about what happened before. He gets to the intersection, and he pauses at the green arrow. And he waits at the green arrow a little bit longer. And he waits some more. And when the arrow turns yellow, and just before it's about to turn red, he speeds through the intersection, turns around, smiles at Abby, and waves at her as she's left behind to wait another three to four minutes for the cycle to repeat. What would you have said if you were the, Abby? What would you have done? How would you have felt? When she came home and she told me the story, I wanted to, I wanted to call the guy up. I wasn't going to do anything serious. I was just going to say, hey, it wasn't even my wife that honked you. It was the guy behind her. Abby, if you know Abby, she's a chill person. She's a special education teacher and people always say to her, wow, you must be so patient. And she is. She doesn't get bothered easily, but even to this day, as I was practicing this and telling her the story over again, her blood was boiling. We all have a strong sense of justice, and David is no different. So if you would turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25, and we'll see how David experiences injustice in his life. I'm going to be reading the first 13 verses. First Samuel 25, starting in verse 1. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man, name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. 
And David said to his men, every man, strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. In this short section, we get the bulk of our action in the story. And we see Nabal, he's arrogant and he's a fool. And his arrogant folly arouses this murderous rage in David. Now, when when the story starts, it tells us that Samuel has died, and it's a little bit of a bad beginning because, see, Samuel is Israel's conscience. He's God's voice to the nation. But now, now that he's gone, who is it that's going to speak wisdom and truth and be the voice of God to Israel, and in particular, and in this story, to David? We'll see in a moment. And after we find out that Samuel has died, we get into the setting of the story. We find that David is wandering in the wilderness and he's trying to keep his distance from Saul. Right? Saul is on a mission to kill David, the challenger to the throne. And so in the wilderness, David and his men encounter someone, a rich someone in Carmel, a man named Nabal. And we learn a few things about Nabal. He's rich, he's harsh, he behaves badly, he's a Calebite, and he's married to Abigail. And Abigail is quite the contrast to her husband. Rather than harsh and poorly behaved, she's presented to us as discerning and beautiful. Now, the circumstances for the story, they're not too complicated. It's time for Nabal to shear his 3,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. That's a lot of wool, which means that's a lot of wealth coming Nabal's way. And so they need to celebrate. It's time to celebrate. The shearing of the sheep is the time for them to collect the, the wealth, the profits on, on their animals, and so it's time to have a party to celebrate that. Now David and his men, they've spent a lot of time hanging out with Nabal's shepherds and the sheep, and they've done them a service by keeping, helping to keep the sheep corralled and keeping animals and thieves away from the men and the sheep. And so David goes and he asks for a share in the party. It's not saying to him, hey, we made an agreement, you would pay me for this, but rather, hey, we did you guys a service, we helped you out, would you show us the honor, would you give a tribute to thank us for what we've done? It's not an unreasonable request. But Nabal, when he hears David's request, it becomes crystal clear to us why he's described as harsh and poorly behaved, because he says, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Now, this response is absurd for at least a couple of reasons. First, if the legend of David slaying his ten thousands, like, if if that's, like, I'm sure that's not just something that was whispered between a couple of people. Everybody knows the story about David and Goliath. He's probably the most famous Israelite, maybe apart from Saul or Samuel. And second, he's a Calebite. That means he's from the tribe of Judah. That's David's tribe. So he's not from some distant tribe where it's like, wait, who's that guy? I know, Israel's really big. You know, I don't know who that guy is. No, they're from the same tribe. Nabal knows who David is. You see, if Nabal was just a miser, someone who didn't like to share, he could have said to David, hey, thanks a lot for what you did for me and for my men and my sheep but I don't want to share with you. I'm going to pass on your request. But no, he says no to David in a most belittling and disrespectful way. 
And as soon as David gets the answer, get your swords on! Straps his own sword on. He's ready to bring justice and to bring it swiftly and without hesitation. There's no pause to think about it. There's not like, let's huddle up, guys. Maybe, you know, like, what are our recourses here? Can we, can we appeal to... No. Now. We're going to go take care of Nabal. I'm not waiting. For this morning, I'm going to call it whack-a-mole justice. David is ready to exact whack-a-mole justice on Nabal. You guys know whack-a-mole? It's this game. You have a little hammer, and as the moles pop their heads out of the holes... Swiftly and without hesitation, you have to hit that mole, and if you don't, you don't get points. I found this gif uh, of a human version of it. Can we go to the next one, uh, Bernardo? <laughs> Nick, Eric, if we don't have one of these for the student ministries, I think it's a good idea. But in the game of whack-a-mole, you cannot win if you are not swift and if you don't act without hesitation. If you pause to think about it, you will lose. And that's exactly what David is doing here. He wants injustice to be met with justice immediately. I know that's how I felt in fifth grade on what was probably the worst day of my grade school life. I was in class and I was working on an assignment with one of my classmates, her name was Vivian. And as Vivian and I were working, there was another student sitting next to us. His name was Scott. And Scott, that day, decided he was going to have a little fun with me. And so he looked over at me and he said, Hey, Jason, do you like Vivian? Not really getting his meaning, I said, Yeah, we're friends. And he says, No, Jason, do you like Vivian? Yeah, Scott, we're friends. Jason, do you... Oh, I get it. No, 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 we're just friends, Scott. I don't like her like that. But Scott wouldn't stop. And he kept needling me, accusing me of liking a girl that I didn't like. And I started to get upset. So I said to him, Scott, don't say that anymore. If you say that again, I'm going to write on your paper. <laughs> and so Scott looked at me and he says, don't write on my paper. And I said, well, don't say that again. So what does Scott do? He says it again, and I write on his paper. That'll show him. Scott looked at the mark on his paper, and he looked back at me, and he says, don't write on my paper again or else. And I said, stop teasing me. Scott kept teasing me, and I made a second mark on his paper. <laughs> and as soon as that second mark hit his paper, he leapt out of his seat, fist cocked, and he started swinging. And I turtled up, covering as best I could. And he swung and he swung and he swung until Miss Glynn was able to jump in and pull him off of me. I left the school that day with a bloody nose and one less tooth. And Scott left that day with a suspension. Each time I remember that day, it feels ridiculous. I don't know why I thought that making marks on his paper would be the justice that I sought. <laughs> and it seems pretty crazy that to Scott, the disrespect of defacing his paper merited a physical assault that earned him a suspension. 
But isn't that what personal human justice often looks like? When we react with our whack-a-mole justice, road rage, or adult arguments at a child's sporting event. Even at home, when we feel like it's not fair, we make little stinging comments toward our loved ones to let them know how I feel. Or maybe since I do the dishes all the time, I'm, you know, it's their turn to do it. I'm just going to leave it and leave it so they know how it feels to have the dishes pile up and make a mess of the kitchen. You know, as human beings, we're great at a lot of things. Artistic expression, inventing technology, engineering infrastructure, athletic feats, cooking really delicious food. But delivering justice is not one of the things that we're good at. And so in this moment, as David has his sword strapped to his belt, he needs help. He needs someone to intervene. And so our heroine, Abigail, comes to the rescue. And it's her intervention that rescues David from his own anger. Look with me at verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain, I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So we see David's reaction. We see Abigail introduced and now we wonder what's going to happen. How is this going to play out? One of Nabal's men comes to Abigail and he says, listen, Abigail, this thing happened. And he verifies to Abigail that David is right. And he throws Nabal under the bus. Right? He won't even listen to us. He's a worthless fool. So in other words, just in case we were thinking that maybe David overreacted here, that you know, like, it's not that big of a deal. No, he is justifiably angry about this situation. It's a true injustice that he's experienced. And Nabal, he's actually as arrogant and foolish as it seems. And so Abigail here, she acts quickly and with wisdom and courage. She prepares the gift that Nabal should have prepared, and she doesn't tell Nabal so that his foolishness will get, won't get in the way. And then she courageously rides out to meet David. Think about this. Here she is, a woman in this time, riding out on donkeys with stuff, 
toward a group of 401 men who are livid and angry and about to kill her husband and all of his men. And she rides out. Who knows what's going to happen? That's a lot of courage for her. And when she sees David, she takes a humble posture and makes one of the most amazing speeches uh, maybe in all of the Old Testament. Look at verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please, let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be, be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of Yahweh your God and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when Yahweh has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when Yahweh has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. It's a long speech, but I want to point out three things that she does in this speech in her effort to diffuse the situation. The first thing that she does, it's quite amazing actually, she places all of the guilt on herself. She says, listen, I know what happened, but don't give any regard to my husband. The fault is mine because I was not there to hear what your men said. And so please, blame me for what happened. Whoa. I mean, that's pretty courageous. Here's this man with his hand on his sword about to kill. And she says, your anger for what happened? What happened is my fault. Please blame me. Second, she asks David for forgiveness. She says, look, I brought all of these things to say sorry to you. This is the gift you should have received when you asked for it. And she says, listen, may a curse be put out on your enemies. May they be as Nabal, fools who are given no regard. Please forgive me, your servant. It's my fault. Don't listen to them. See this gift. Please forgive me. And the last thing she does, which is, is just brilliant, she reminds David of who he represents. She reminds David of who he represents. She says to him, listen, God has promised you that he will make you a sure house. We both know that you've been anointed and you're headed toward the throne. Don't forget that. Whose battles are you fighting, David? Remember, you are fighting God's battles. She even throws a reference in to David and Goliath with the sling, like, may God throw out your enemies like out of the hollow of a sling. You're fighting for God, David. 
Your life is cared for by God. You can trust your life and the injustices in your life to him. Your enemies are his enemies. You don't have to make sure justice is served by your hand. Don't make that mistake. Don't tarnish God's name. Rather, trust God to get your back. She warns him, David, you want to get to the throne with a clear conscience, trusting God to save you and to fight for you. It's a really wise speech. And actually, I think it's reasonable to conclude that in the absence of Samuel, Abigail is God's prophet to David. He is speaking to David through her. You know, it's interesting where this story is placed in the flow of the whole, all of 1 Samuel. It's sandwiched between two occasions where David has an opportunity to kill Saul and to claim the throne of Israel and two opportunities where he steps away and says, no, I will not kill Saul. But here, in 1 Samuel 25, right between 24 and 26, there's no hesitation in his, in, in his mind. Nepal, he's done. That's it. I'm not going to suffer this man anymore. What's the difference? I think the difference is that when he looks at Saul, he sees God's anointed king and someone whose life is not his to take. But Nabal, it's a, he's a fool who can be dismissed. Does he know who I am? Does he know that I am the Lord's anointed? How dare he disrespect me? Doesn't he know that I'm going to be in the throne one day and that he should actually be wanting to like, you know, pat me on the back and like butter me up so that when I'm the king, But through Abigail, the Lord intervenes and he reminds David that a man after God's own heart will trust the Lord no matter who's on the other side. That the Lord is not a respecter of persons. That injustice suffered, vengeance, justice is not ours to take. even if that other person is a fool. And that's not just true for David. That's also true for us, the church, followers of Jesus today. Second Peter, or sorry, First Peter chapter two, verses nine to 10. Peter writes, <clears throat> but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're similar to David. When we experience personal injustice, our reflex is to defend ourselves and to seek justice for those that we love. But if we seek vengeance and we call it justice, how can we genuinely proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of that darkness and into his marvelous light? How can we highlight the mercy of God, right, the mercy that we've received, if we refuse to offer mercy to the one who hurts us?
After David hears Abigail's speech, he thinks about it, and he realizes she's right. He hears the message from the Lord, and he praises Abigail and gives thanks to the Lord for delivering him from doing something that he was going to regret. And as our passage comes to its conclusion, we'll see that God's justice, indeed, it comes to Nabal in short order, and David has opportunity to celebrate. You see, Abigail, she goes home after encountering David. David says to her, listen, Abigail, thank you so much. Go in peace. I will not do what I had planned to do. We're good. So she goes home, and she finds her husband, Nabal, and he's partying, and he is drunk, and he is acting true to form. And so she decides, okay, not tonight. She waits, and then the next morning, she tells Nabal what has happened. And he has some sort of medical emergency event. It says his heart turned to stone within him, and 10 days later, he's gone. He dies. David celebrates. Thank you, Lord, for bringing justice and for sparing me from acting out in vengeance. And then being impressed with Abigail, he calls her up and says, Abigail, I would like to take you as my wife. And she agrees, and he marries her. And the passage ends with a little bit of David's marital history, which is not a conversation for today. For David, his justice comes within a couple of weeks. So our story ends with a nice little bow on top of it. David's at peace, and Nabal, the fool, is judged. But the honest truth is that justice usually doesn't have a two-week lead time. And sadly for some, justice never comes. And I think that's probably the hardest part about personal injustice, waiting for it. Seeing injustice done to me or someone I love, and then not being able to do anything about it. And so like David, we also need deliverance from our desire and from our plan for immediate justice. Now, I'm not saying that we need to make no effort to right any wrong or that we should become callous to injustice that's done to us. But what I'm saying is that we need to address whack-a-mole justice or our desire for vengeance when we experience harm. So what can we do? I'm going to offer you two suggestions for how we can deal with this desire that we have within us. Taking from the example of David himself, I think first we can cling to our Heavenly Father. In Psalm 73, it's one of my favorite psalms, um, David is writing, maybe the two verses that are most famous from this psalm are verses 25 and 26. You may recognize it as I read it. It says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But if you you zoom out and you look at the beginning of that psalm, it starts really, really differently. Listen to what he writes in verses three to six. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. 
he is really struggling and wrestling with the injustice that he sees in the world. I almost feel like as he's strapping on his sword, with his other hand, he's writing this psalm. People like Nabal, how dare they? Something has to be done about people like Nabal. But then, about midway through, he realizes something. Look at verse 18. Truly, you set the wicked in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Later, he describes them as like phantoms in a dream where you have a dream and something bad is happening and you wake up and instantly, whatever phantom that was in your dream is gone. That's what the wicked are like to our God. He realizes no one's pulling the wool over the eyes of God. And he realizes that what he needs most of all is not justice, but God himself. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So first, I think we can cling to our Heavenly Father. And then second, we can remember Jesus. We can remember Jesus. I don't think it's hard to argue that the greatest injustice that the world has ever seen is the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus. The Jews took the Son of God, the one who created them, the one who sustains them, the one who was inviting them into a restored relationship with their Heavenly Father, and they executed him. And for generations since, people have been, continued rejecting Jesus and used his name for their own goals and glory. That's not justice. That's not justice for the Son of God. What would be justice for Jesus? I think we see a picture of that in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That would be justice for Jesus. But that day, it is not today. It has not happened yet. There are plenty of people who don't bow the knee, who don't confess with their tongues who Jesus is and give him the honor and glory that he's due. Jesus is still waiting for his justice. But we know that God will bring about justice for his own son. How much more should we trust our God to bring justice for us at the right time? Sometimes, I think most of the time, we wait for God's justice, and waiting is not easy. But I pray that for each of us, God would provide a prophetic voice like Abigail, and that like David, we would listen and trust that the wait will be worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story and for your love for your people and in here your love for David. We thank you for sending him, Abigail, to rescue him from vengeance, to rescue him from evil, from doing something that he would have regretted, that would not have been becoming of your anointed king. 
And we pray, Lord, that you would do the same for us, that you would rescue us from the vengeance that we feel in our hearts when we experience injustice so that we would not do something that's, that we would regret, that gives a bad name to our God as we try and proclaim the excellencies of you, the one who saved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.